Well, good morning, church. Um, as many of you guys know, I used to work in the emergency room. And one of my least favorite parts about working in the emergency room was when a kid would come into the ER as a patient. And it's not because I don't like kids. I love kids. Uh, but I found that after having kids, it was starting to become more and more difficult to see sick and injured kids come in that were the ages that my boys are, okay? And so, for example, when you have a child that is three, it is more painful. You have more empathy for a three-year-old that comes in sick or injured, okay? So I really started to not like to see kids as patients. It was just, it, it hurt more. I had to empathize more. I could feel for the families more. Now, the other reason that I didn't like to see kids in the ER is because moms with sick kids are crazy, <laughs> They are crazy. Like they go into this irrational mama bear mode, right? And they, they misplace all their aggression and all their pain onto the healthcare staff. They can't understand why the whole hospital has not shut down to come, you know, care for the needs of their child. And some of them, you know, you're trying to start an IV and they're just like coating them in essential oils and trying to like to do everything they can. And, and, and so something just really crazy happens to, moms with sick kids. And so well, one day, though, there was a little boy that came into the ER. It was about a three or four-year-old boy, and he had a fish hook stuck in his thumb, all right, which that, that is a pretty common thing to see. Uh, the, the engineers, whoever designs fish hooks, they've made them so they're very, they puncture things very easily, uh, but then they get stuck. They don't, you can't get them back out. And so this three-year-old boy, he comes in, he's screaming, he's crying, right? Uh, I walk into the room. Uh, mom is also screaming and crying, and I initially thought mom was the patient because the nurses are kind of huddled around mom, holding her up, comforting her. The, the, the patient then is sitting with dad and just holding out his thumb, but, but shrieking and screaming. Anytime anyone takes a step near that thumb, it's just a, a shriek. It's a, it's a cry out of terror. And so I, I quickly assess the situation. I see what I need to do. I see what medicine I need to get, what tools I need to get. And so I step out of the room. And in the meantime, the nurses and other staff, they're trying to kind of just calm everybody down, trying to diffuse the situation. And so I come back into the room. Everyone's been calmed down. The nurses have our, you know, buddy-buddy with, with this kid. They've won him over with some popsicles and things like that. But he sees me walk into the room with my toolkit. All right. Now, I, I usually try to be pretty discreet with the, the needles and syringes and scalpels and all that. Kind of keep that hidden, you know, so people don't see that and get freaked out. Uh, but, but he's calm. He's buddy-buddy with everybody in the room. But he sees me walk in, and he knows I'm up to something, right? He knows I'm up to something. He doesn't exactly see what I have, but he knows I'm up to something. And so he starts to scream anytime I take a step close to him, and he calms down when I step back away. And so the, the nurses and parents, then they're trying to now explain to this child who, who I am and that I have the medicine that's going to take his pain away. Like, I have the medicine that's going to numb his, his thumb and make it feel better. I have the tools that are going to heal this wound in his thumb, and that my intention is not to, to hurt him, but it is to heal him. And so I'm drawing up the numbing medicine, you know, trying to make small talk about Paw Patrol and things like that. Uh, but, but I'm starting to get teary-eyed and feel the pain because I know that this is what the, the, the kid needs, but I also know that injecting numbing medicine into a thumb, like, it's going to hurt. 
There's going to be uh, some pain. It's going to sting for a few seconds until it gets numb. But I know it's what the child needs. And so the, the parents and nurses, they're comforting the boy. I kind of try to, to block his thumb so he can't see what I'm doing. And, and I inject the medicine. He screams. I know it hurts. But then in a few seconds, it's numb. He's pain-free. And I remove the fish hook. What I want you to see was that this three-year-old boy was frightened. What frightened him the most, what scared him the most, was actually what he needed for healing. It's what he needed to be healed. What he feared the most was not meant to hurt him, but to heal him. And now as patients get older, as we mature, usually that interaction changes, all right? So when a 50-year-old man comes in with a fish hook in his thumb, I say usually the interaction changes, okay? Uh, but, but usually we don't have to calm him down and there's not a team of people trying to explain what I'm doing. No, why? He understands who I am. He understands that I'm not there with an intent to hurt him, but I'm there with an intent to heal him. So turn, turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. I know it's been a few weeks uh, since we've been in the book of Mark, but we're continuing our series going through the gospel according to Mark. So we're in Mark 6, verse 45. You see, a lot of times what you are most scared of, or a lot of times what you are most frightened of, is actually what you need to be healed and what I would propose to you this morning and what we're going to see in our text this morning is that the solution to not living in fear is to understand and experience who Jesus is. To remember his past faithfulness and to receive the work that he is doing on your heart. Okay, let's go. Mark 6, verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. All right, you remember. I know it's been a few weeks, but you remember. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 which we learned that that was just 5,000 men. It was probably more like 20,000 people. You can imagine that's Banker's Life Stadium packed out. He takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he feeds approximately 20,000 people. And immediately after that, now here in verse 45, he makes his disciples get into the boat because we learn in the other gospel accounts that, that after he fed the 20,000 people, they wanted to make him king, Right? I mean, who wouldn't want a king that can take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 20,000 people? But the people and even, even the crowd, even the disciples at this point, they don't really understand who Jesus is. They, they thought the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer was going to come and deliver them from the Romans and was going to set up this new government here on earth. And they didn't see that Jesus was ultimately there to deliver them from their ultimate enemies of Satan's sin and death. And so the crowd right now is in awe of this miracle. I'm sure they're even praising the disciples as well because the disciples were the ones kind of passing out the food to the different groups. And so they're becoming celebrities. The crowd is wanting to make Jesus king. And I'm sure the disciples are kind of getting hyped up, getting caught up in all this too because, hey, if Jesus is king, we're probably going to be governors or commanders or rulers of some sort, right? And so the crowd and the disciples, they think they understand who Jesus is, but Jesus knows that they don't. 
And so he quickly, he immediately, he rushes them, gets them into the boat, and sends them off. And he goes to pray in solitude. Look back now at verse uh, 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Well, let's stop there for a second, okay? The, the disciples who don't yet have a real understanding of who Jesus is, he, he puts them in a boat and he sends them out onto the sea. And then Jesus goes up to pray in solitude. He then looks out, okay, in the middle of the night, around 3 to 6 a.m., right, early, early morning. He looks out, and he sees that they are struggling. Verse 48, it says, They were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And we read in other gospel accounts that explain that they're now, they're now rowing the boat, right? They're straining. Verse 48, making headway painfully. That word painfully, it means to strain or even means like they're being tormented by the elements at this point, okay? The wind is against them. It's painful. They're rowing. They're straining. They're being tormented by the elements. Listen, it is not fun when the wind is against you. It is not fun when the wind is against you. A few years ago, I decided to go on a bike ride, and uh, it was a really windy day, and I made the mistake of, okay, I'm going to bike out a certain distance from my house, I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to bike back. And so I decide to bike with the wind first, all right? So it's a really windy day, and man, I, I, th I felt like, you know, I was the best, you know, cyclist in the world. I was just, just pedaling my heart out. The wind was carrying me. I barely had to pedal. My legs felt great and I just kept going and going and going. I went way farther than I'd even planned because, man, I all of a sudden had become a great cyclist. But then what happened when I turned around and the wind now is directly in my face? That is a very different biking experience, okay? Biking with the wind and biking against the wind. I quickly learned that if you're going to, if it's windy, start out going against the wind and then come back home with the wind. But sometimes you've got to live and you've got to learn. But the wind was against them. They were straining. It was painful. And if we could be honest with one another and kind of take off this fake church mask for a second. You guys know the mask I'm talking about, the mask we put on to say that we've got it all together, right? If we, if we can take that mask off for a second and be real, I think a lot of life feels like the wind is against us. I mean, anyone else besides me sometimes feel like the wind is against them. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times and there are seasons where God gives relief. He gives some refreshment. It feels like the wind is at our backs. Things go smoothly. But I would say most of the time, it feels like the wind is against us. We are straining, trying to row the boat of life, right? Disappointment happens. Heartache happens. 
Relationships get broken. Someone gets sick. Someone passes away. Finances are strained. Kids rebel. Times with the Lord don't feel as refreshing as they used to feel. Maybe someone sins against us and hurts us deeply and leaves deep wounds on our heart. And we strain and we strain and we feel the wind blowing against us. Nothing's easy. It feels like we're treading through mud. The wind often feels like it's against us. And I wish I could say that in this story, Jesus shows up and everyone's instantly happy, healthy, and wealthy, and they live happily ever after. But that's not exactly how the story goes. Jesus does show up, but what happens initially when they see him? They think he's a ghost, and they're terrified. They're terrified. They are scared. They're frightened. Now, I feel for them a little bit. We can feel, we can cut them a little bit of slack. It's not every day you see someone walking on the water, okay? So I get being a little startled by this, but they are terrified. Just like that boy with the fish hook in his finger, the one who can rescue them shows up and they're terrified of him. They're scared of him. And their reaction, it reveals it reveals their lack of understanding of who he is. And it reveals their forgetfulness of his past miraculous works. And it reveals that their own wounds and sin have caused their hearts to be unable to receive this healing and to receive this rescue that Jesus is offering. Zach uh, Eswine, who he was the speaker at Sojourn's Conference, that I went to a couple of weeks ago, he, he said this. He said, Like the disciples seeing Jesus come to them on the water, our wounds can leave us face to face with healing and mistake it for a haunting. I'll read it again. Like the disciples seeing Jesus come to them on the water, our wounds can leave us face to face with healing and mistake it for a haunting. Now, I, I, didn't plan to, I didn't plan this out to preach about the disciples thinking Jesus was a ghost around the time of October 31st, okay? Uh, that, that's just where God providentially allowed us to be. And I don't know what your convictions are on October 31st, what, what we in our neighborhood do. We celebrate Reformation Day on October 31st. It's pretty cool. Everyone gets dressed up in costumes, and they go around to houses, and they get candy, um, and some people, they dress up really scary, uh, which, which I'm assuming they're, they're doing that to remind us that before the Reformation, things in the church had gotten kind of scary. So I'm giving them the, the benefit of the doubt on that one. That's why they're dressing up that way, right? Um, that was sort of to be a, a little bit of a joke uh, so everyone can just breathe. Uh, I realize that maybe wasn't the best, but every October 31st, I am going to make a Reformation Day joke. It's just, that's what's going to happen. Okay, but the disciples, they see Jesus right? They see Jesus. They see the one who can rescue them, and they're terrified. They're terrified, and they reveal they don't know who he is. They've forgotten what he can do, and their hearts lack the ability to respond to their Savior. Because remember, this is not their first storm. This is not their first, just a couple chapters ago. I mean, I'm talking Mark chapter four. I know we're flying through the book of Mark, but just two chapters ago, they were in a storm. 
They were so terrified they thought they were going to die. And Jesus, with a word, silenced the wind and the waves. I mean, this is not their first storm. Similar situation, all right? I even thought about just preaching the same exact sermon and seeing if anyone noticed, right? I thought about it. I didn't do it, but I might do it someday just to see. So he silenced the first storm. They get out of the boat. They go and they watch him feed 20,000 people. They now get back into the boat. They're in a similar spot, probably similar location, similar situation, probably in the same boat. And they've forgotten his past faithfulness and provisions to them. They haven't understood these past things that he has done, and they haven't responded rightly to those miracles they've seen. So can you guys envision, envision this scene, all right? It's between 3 and 6 a.m. It's dark. The disciples are straining, rowing the boat. The wind is against them. The waves are crashing into them. The water is filling up the boat. They've forgotten the goodness and faithfulness of God who saved them from the last storm. They've forgotten the abundant provisions that they've seen Jesus provide. And I think a lot of us can relate to that situation. It's dark. It's storming. It's painful. We're straining. We're fearful. And we have forgotten God's past faithfulness and provisions for us. Like, I I think I just described a lot of days that we have collectively all experienced. But listen, things are going to take a turn when Jesus shows up like they always do. Because the darkness, the wind, the rain, the waves, the pain, the straining, that scene is not what it seems. It's not what it seems, and everything is about to change when we behold who this Jesus really is. And so I'll say the same thing to you that Jesus is about to say to the disciples. Jesus commands his disciples, he says, take heart, meaning to have courage, be of good cheer. And why can they take heart? Why can they have courage? We're about to see, okay? First, it's because Jesus sees the situation. Look at Mark 6, verse 48. They can take heart because Jesus sees the situation. Verse 48, it says, And he saw that they were making headway painfully. He sees. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he sees them. And and church, we know that God is an all-knowing God, and he's a God who is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. There's not a bad day that you have had that God has not seen. We can take heart in that truth, right? I mean, our pain, our our straining, those seemingly hopeless situations, they have not been overlooked and they have not gone unnoticed. And maybe, maybe no other human being saw that dark day in your past, but God did. He saw it. And not only does he see it, but he has a plan to remedy it. He has a plan to redeem it. Verse 48 continues. Watch what Jesus' plan is. Verse 48, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. 
he meant to pass by them. Do you see his plan to remedy the situation? Is to pass by them. Now, we can read that and totally miss what it's talking about, okay? This is not saying that Jesus was trying to get around them unnoticed, okay? That's how I maybe read it at first. Like, this is not saying that he meant to get around them or avoid them like you do to your Facebook friends that you run into at the store that you don't really want to have a conversation with, right? You see just an an acquaintance, you kind of duck behind an aisle and kind of go the long way around so you don't have to have a conversation with them, right? Don't act like I'm the only one that does that. You guys do that too, all right? I, I mean, I'll admit I do that sometimes, not to any of you, but to other people, right? Uh, but, but listen, that is not what is happening here. Jesus isn't just trying to get around them unnoticed and, oh, shoot, they saw me. I guess I should talk to them, right? That's not what's happening here. What, what Mark is trying to convey in the language of Jesus passing by them, it's something much deeper and much richer. So we have to pause and we have to kind of dig deep on this a little bit, okay? Because listen, his solution, his solution for the disciples' situation is not to avoid them, but instead to reveal his glory to them. The language of Jesus passing by them should be reminding us of a past Old Testament story where God passed by and revealed his glory to someone. Turning your Bibles to Exodus 33. I know we have the scriptures up on the screen, but if you do have a Bible in front of you, I'd love for you to turn there to Exodus 33 because I want you guys to see this for yourself. Because uh, the story here in Mark should be reminding us and pointing us back to the Old Testament. Just like God had provided for the Israelites in the wilderness by feeding them, Jesus has just fed the multitude out in the wilderness, right? And now he intends to pass by and reveal his glory to them. So this passing by, the way Mark is writing it, he is intending to have us remember back to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, in your English Bible, when you see the Lord in all capital letters, that is where the Hebrew scriptures have written the name Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. And Yahweh is God's personal, self-chosen name. And we're going to talk about it in just a couple more minutes, okay? But look at verse 19 again. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where ye shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. Then go to chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so in Mark, 
When we're saying that Jesus intends to pass by them, we're saying it is in a similar way to show them his glory and to declare to them his name, who he is. They haven't yet gotten a right understanding of who Jesus is, and he intends to show them his glory and declare to them who he is. So what does he say to them? After they're freaking out, back in Mark 6, verse 50, what does he say to them? He says, take heart. He says, it is I. It is I. It is I is another phrase that we can quickly read through in English and not really understand the significance of it. So it is I. It is the Greek phrase, ego I me. Ego I me which that phrase is meant to remind us of Exodus once again. So don't turn there. Just look up on the screen. Exodus 3, verse 14. Exodus 3, 14. God is talking to Moses at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Okay, now stick with me for a second, all right? The Hebrew name Yahweh is closely connected and associated to the Hebrew verb I am, all right? So Yahweh most simply means the one who is. God said, I am who I am, all right? Yahweh means the self-existent one. The great I am is self-sufficient self-existent, meaning his existence does not rely or depend on anyone or anything else. His plans are not contingent upon anyone or anything else. Our great God, Yahweh, the great I am. Okay? You with me? Do you know what the Hebrew phrase I am is when it's translated to the Greek New Testament language? It's ego I me. It is I. So listen, Jesus passing by was a display of his glory and a declaration of who he is. And just in case the whole walking on water wasn't clear enough, he says, take heart. He says, I am. It is I. I am the great I am. This passage is a declaration that Jesus is God. Why can he say take heart? Why can he say have courage? In the midst of the wind beating against them and the waves crashing down on them, why can he say that? Because he is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is self-existent and his plans are not dependent upon any created thing like a storm. No, the wind and those waves, they are actually dependent upon him to even exist at all. So look back at Mark 6, verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Listen, what the disciples needed most was not for the wind to stop blowing or for the waves to stop crashing. That's not what they needed the most. They needed Jesus to reveal to them who he is. They needed to see the glory of God revealed to them through Jesus Christ. But church, they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. 
They were terrified. They're astounded. They're scared of the glory of God that they've come into contact with. It's a, it's a frightening thing to them. It's not yet a comforting thing for them. And we, many times, we are terrified and fearful as well because we either don't understand who he is or we've forgotten his past faithfulness to us or we don't understand the condition of our own heart and how he is working on it. Okay? You see, when we don't understand who, that, that Jesus is the great I am, when we don't understand that Jesus is our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, and that Christ is Yahweh, the great I am, when we forget that, when we forget that, he sees us in distress. When we forget that he knows we are straining in the wind and the waves. When we do that, we start to make some very wrong assumptions about God. And if I lost you in kind of the Hebrew-Greek stuff, come back to me, okay? All right? Uh, because when we don't understand who Jesus is, we start to make some very wrong assumptions about the wind and the waves that come against us in life. What can happen is that we start to falsely assume that God has forgotten us. Oh, he, he, must, have just, he must have forgotten. Or we can start to assume that God doesn't see us hurting. Or we start to assume maybe he sees us, he just doesn't care. He obviously doesn't care about this situation. Or maybe we can forget that Jesus took the punishment for our sin, and so when the wind and the waves come against us, we, we, we falsely think that God is punishing us, like he's getting us back for all those bad things that we've done. Or some of us, we grow sorrowful, we sink into depression because we think that this is just how it's always going to be. Like, this is never going to stop. The wind is never going to stop. The waves are never going to stop. I, I don't see how God will ever change this situation. And some of you even now might be angry, growing bitter with God. Your life has not gone the way you thought it should go, and so you attack God and accuse God for the wounds that you have in your heart and in your life. You attack God and accuse God for the broken relationships that he has not yet mended, for the disappointments that you've gone through. You attack God for not giving you what he gave to that other person. You accuse God of not holding up his end of the bargain, like, like you were going to follow him and he was supposed to do these things for you. So you grow angry with God. You grow bitter towards God. You attack him, you accuse him, and then eventually people just avoid him altogether. And church, my heart, my heart aches for some of you right now who are feeling this way. Some of you right now feel like the wind is against you and that the waves are drowning you. But my prayer this morning is that you would be comforted to hear me proclaim to you that God sees you. He sees you. He sees the wind in your face. But my prayer is not only that you would know that he sees you, but that you would behold the glory of Christ pass before you this morning. And that you would experience and know this gracious love of God. Jesus looked down. He saw the situation. It was dark. There was wind. There were waves. The disciples were straining in agony. 
But what was the most dangerous part of that scenario? Think, think to yourself, just in your, own, in your own minds, think to yourself, what do you think Jesus thought was the most dangerous thing about that scenario? Do, do you think it was the wind? Do you think he was most concerned that the wind was going to harm his disciples? Or do you think it was the waves? Like, do you think Jesus thought maybe the waves were the most dangerous part? Or maybe it was the boat. Like, the boat was maybe creaking, cracking. Maybe the boat wasn't going to hold up. What do you think was the most dangerous part of that scenario? It was not the wind, and it was not the waves. It was their hard hearts. Verse 52, Mark 6, 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You see, church, God has looked down upon us and he does see that we are in need of rescue. But it's not ultimately from the dangers out there. No, he looked down and he saw that what we needed to be saved from was the power and penalty of sin which had hardened our hearts to the point where we could not love God, where we could not see his glory in Christ and where we were unable to receive his grace. And when he went to the cross, he took upon himself our sin, and he silenced the storm of God's wrath that was against us, which, by the way, was the only storm that could actually harm us, right? And he was raised to life so that we might experience newness of life in him. And then while God is not the author of evil, he does sovereignly allow some stuff to happen to us, right? He even allows people to sin against us, to hurt us, to wound us. And yet we know Romans 8, 28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so somehow... He even takes the things that the enemy meant for evil in our lives and he turns it into good and he uses it to soften our hearts and to heal our wounds that sin has caused. Church, there is no greater comfort than in the midst of the wind hitting you in the face and the waves crashing around you. There's no greater comfort than to look to Jesus and for him to say, take heart. I am the great I am. This is my wind. These are my waves. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to heal you. And all of a sudden, when you see him for who he is, and when we realize that this is his wind, these are his waves, the storms of life take a whole new meaning for that person. If this is his wind against me, if this is God's wind, it must not be to destroy me, it must be to sanctify me. 
If, this, if these waves are God's waves, they must not be to drown me. They must be to purify me. This passage is most commonly titled, Jesus Walks on Water. But I think as I've studied it, I will always remember it as when Jesus walked on his water. Because the comfort is in the fact that this is his wind, and these are his waves, and they are not coming against us to hurt us. They are coming against us to heal us. Church, we take comfort that our God has a redemptive purpose for the storms that he sends us into. He's doing a miraculous, sanctifying work on our hearts. And sometimes, sometimes it feels like a, a soothing balm that he gently is applying, right? But others, it feels like a sharp scalpel of a surgeon that's cutting us. But we know and we trust that the word says in Psalm 147, verse 3. And let's leave this verse up here for a little, a little bit as I keep talking. We know and we trust that the word says that our God, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. When we understand who Jesus is, when we see the glory of God revealed to us through him, we know that he is healing his world and he's healing his people. And we're almost done, but I want you to see the reaction of people when they land who recognize him as the healer. So go back to Mark 6, verse 54. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Church, may we too have a sense of urgency to bring our sin, to bring our wounds into the presence of Jesus for healing. May we bring our friends and our families and bring them to Jesus to experience the healing that only he can give. And may we, in our prayers, may we plead for Jesus to pass by and reveal his glory to us and to our neighbors and our co-workers and our classmates. And church, listen, what a, what a joyful, just imagine this, okay? Imagine a life like this. What a joyful life it would be to live every day, whether the wind be at our back or whether it be hitting us in the face, what a joy it would be to be able to rest in and enjoy that this is his wind. And that he has not come to hurt us, he has come to heal us. And so whether it's the wind at our back or whether it's the wind smacking us in the face, we know this is his wind. He has not come to hurt us, but to heal us. And I'd like to close with reading to you the verse of a hymn called Be Still My Soul. It was a hymn that, that um, the Spirit really ministered to me through it this week. And one of the verses, it reads like this. It says, Be still my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as in ages past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. 
All now mysterious shall be bright at last. And hear this. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know the Christ who ruled them while he dwelt below. Let's be still before the Lord. Let's pray.